you will take your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Hebrews, the seventh chapter. Hebrews chapter 7. As we return to the passage we've been looking at, uh, we'll start again at verse 1. If you would join me in standing, uh, reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 7, starting again at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Turn now to Genesis chapter 14, and uh, let's just remind ourselves of the details of that exchange. So Genesis chapter 14. Starting at verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day. Help us to see Christ as he is revealed as priest. Help us to understand what a great and precious mercy it is that you have given us a priest to stand in the way, to intermediate for us, and to offer himself to God that you brought him here to do. We pray, God, that in the midst of this day we would understand more of the glory that has been given to us as your child. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As evangelicals, we often state quite clearly that we need no priest to intercede on our behalf with the Father. We have been drawn unto Him. He has made a way for us to know Him, and He has changed our hearts so that we want to know Him. The fact of the matter is that in our concern to eradicate all false human power, we miss out on the truth that we have priest. Jesus still functions as a priest on our behalf. He is still our advocate. He is still our, our, our mediator who is pleading the blood that he shed once for all as a sacrifice on our behalf. We do indeed need a priest, but the priest that we need is not a man in robes or cassock. We need a priest that God has set forth for us, the high priest, Jesus Christ. So I want to thank you this morning because it is fairly foreign to our understanding of exactly what the priest came to do, exactly why it is so important that we not lose sight of this. Most of us have at least a, a, a smattering of understanding. We know that the priest offered the sacrifice, and we know that by the sacrifice that Christ offered, we have life. But there is so much more that is wrapped up in the priesthood. There is so much more that they did for the people of Israel and all of these things are wrapped up in the ministry of Christ. So I want to I want to think with you about this office and about this role a little more completely. And the first thing that we need to understand is that the priests were set apart. 
And they were not just ordinary people who got up one day and said, well, I think I want to be a priest. Or in some traditions, I'm 21 years old and I'm not yet married, therefore I have to go become a priest. Um, it, it's not about the idea that, that you are obligated to do something or you've just decided that sounds like fun, but you have a specific calling on your life and God himself sets you apart. Now in the Old Testament, it was the entire tribe of Levi. And the entire tribe of Levi was set apart because Aaron, who was the first high priest, the brother of Moses, was of the tribe of Levi, right? So it was set apart because that was the people that God first set apart and said, you will be a priest to me forever. So these priests who have been set apart is, is they've been set apart to serve God. The priesthood is about the God that they serve. It's never about themselves. It's never about their own private desire. And it's never about advancing their own gain. If you recall, um, in, the, in the Old Testament, we see the sons of Levi um, abusing their role as priests unto God. Or not sons of Levi, but the, um, the sons of Eli, excuse me. Abusing their role as priests unto God. And God slew them for it. We see the sons of Aaron offering strange fire. And God slew them for it. So, so when men abuse this role and set out to advance themselves, it's not to say that every dishonest priest is going to be slain. It's not to say that every dishonest man who claims to be from God is going to be slain in some dramatic way. But it is to say that every person who sets themselves apart and says, I am a servant of God and I am, I am this person in this role, and I'm going to use that as personal gain and avarice and to advance myself despite whatever God says, at the very least, we need to understand that they set themselves in great danger. They set themselves in a position whereby they just might fall under the judgment of God. Because the priest is set apart by God and set apart by God as his own special portion of Israel. Look at Numbers chapter 3. Numbers chapter 3. And listen to how God describes this. Um, Numbers chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 11. God says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb. Therefore, the children of, who opens the womb among the children of Israel, therefore the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So God says, when I bought you out of Egypt, the price of the firstborn children of Egypt, I set apart for myself the firstborn of every one of your families. They belong to me. But rather than claiming the firstborn of every one of your families, I'm going to reserve for myself the entire tribe of Levi. And so there's a connection here. And God says specifically, these people are mine. They belong to me. Their lives are mine. Their, their doing is mine. Their behavior is mine. Their dreams are mine. Their aspirations are mine. They belong to me and to me alone. And they have no other claim on any other part of their life. I might give them something. I might withhold something. They belong to me. 
And, and the priesthood was particularly required to be holy and to be carefully observant of the mandates required by God. And the people needed them to perform their duties carefully. And the people needed them to perform their duties faithfully. And the people needed them to perform their duties exactly as God prescribed because to approach God wrongly was to invite death. Listen to how it's described in Numbers chapter 3 just a little bit before. In fact, verse right before we started reading. He said, So shall you appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall attend to their priesthood. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Now what's fascinating to me about this priesthood and the way that God set it up is that God initiates the priesthood. He established the priesthood. He set the duties. He set the limits. He set the scope and the focus of their work. They were chosen by God to do what God said they were to do. And the work of each family and each person was carefully prescribed by God for their duties and the time which they would serve. If you recall, when we were reading through earlier in Numbers, we went through several weeks where we were reading the duties of the different families in Levi. And all the things that they were to carry and all the things that they were to do for the worship. And how it was that every single family had its responsibility. And God even went so far as to say that they will serve actively from the time that they're 20 until the time that they're 50. And aside from that, they will help their brethren and they will, they will be a support, but they will no longer serve actively in the temple. And so God set all of those limits. And God was the one who ordained all of these things because they belong to Him. And the entire thing of this is that God Himself not only provided a way for His people to come into His presence, but He established the priesthood so that they could make use of the way that He the way that he provided was the blood of sacrifice. But he made sure that there were people whose only job was to facilitate between his people and himself in every aspect of what that looked like. So think about that for just a minute. Think about the fact that God himself has done everything needful to bring his people into his presence. He doesn't leave any of it to chance. He doesn't leave any of it to us to try and figure out on our own. He doesn't leave any of it to our will, to our purpose, to our intentions, because that would introduce error. Even if one person got that wrong, if out of all of creation, every single person that Christ died for was saved except one, did Christ accomplish his mission? No. Because he came and he died for the sheep. And that means all of them. There's no way in the world that God would leave any part of it to chance when the glory of Christ is at stake. The fullness and the entirety of what he came to do, he came to do and to accomplish with certainty. And the roots of it go all the way back into the establishing of the priesthood so that the manner in which the people would come to him was carefully preserved and carefully observed. The priests were the ones who understood the law of God. They were the ones who understood exactly how things were to be done. That was their job. There was a, a, a place and a role where the people had a part in this. But God initiated this entire working of the priesthood so that his people would have a safe and sure and reliable path to come into his presence. He wanted to make sure that they could worship. He wanted to make sure that they could serve. It is always God who initiates our path to himself and everything that is required for us to come into worship. Just think about that. God calls you to worship. He gives a command. Would he be completely righteous if he just said, 
Worship me as I deserve to be worshipped. And gave us no further instruction. Would he be righteous? Absolutely he would. Might not be kind in that because there's a whole lot of things that we would dream up and try and do that would offend him. But it wouldn't make him less righteous. It wouldn't make him less loving. He still loves people who love him. But God in his mercy gave us everything that's needed, gave us the instructions, and gave to his people the priesthood so that those instructions would be remembered and practiced. He is always seeking his people. He is always drawing us to himself. He is always the one who initiates that. Notice when Melchizedek first is introduced in Genesis 14. Did Abram go up to the city of Salem and go, Hey, Melchizedek, I want to wrap with you for a minute. No. What happened? Melchizedek came out to meet them. Why do you think that happened? Was Melchizedek looking for a, for a gift? Hey, you're going to cross by my city. You're going to pay your way. Was that what was happening? I mean, he walked away with a tithe of everything that Abram had captured. It was probably a fairly large sum. Was that Melchizedek's point? No. Melchizedek went out to bless Abram. God sought Abram. He initiated that institution. He initiated that exchange. And by doing so... He gave testimony to us that all of our worship is the draw of God. Amen. No person worships on their own initiative. You cannot. You cannot worship God on your own initiative. Because the natural man hates God. The natural man is opposed to the things of God. The natural man in, in and of himself never seeks what is right, never does what is right, never desires what is right. So any person who worships the God who is worships on the initiative of the God who drew him. Here's how Jesus described it in John chapter 4. He said, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, the salvations of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. When we say God is seeking, we don't mean God's out there beating the bushes going, hmm, is there anybody else who might want to worship? It means that God is actively drawing. God is doing the work to make sure that He is bringing His people in. He is drawing us to Himself. He is causing the worship that He requires. So we find the priesthood completely initiated by God, given to us for His purpose and for His glory, so that we who are His might worship Him faithfully and accurately and according to His will and according to His purpose. But there are some things wrapped up in this worship that we often don't consider. And those are the parts that get really fascinating to me. So the very first thing that we see is that involved in worship, there are these acts of blessing. And the, the first half is, is what the priests do and the second half is what the worshipers do. And so we're going to go through all of these different components, and we're going to think about both halves of that. We're going to see how the priests are engaged, and we're going to see how the people are engaged. So in the act of blessing, the priest blesses. The priests of God are, are called out to bless the people of God. Look at Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6 Verses 22 to 27. 
we have this ironic blessing. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, this is the way that you shall bless the children of Israel. This is a prescribed statement that God commands the priests to use. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. So when Melchizedek came out to see Moses, or just came out to see Moses, there's a story. When Melchizedek came out to see Abram, what did he do? He blessed him. He gave him blessing in the name of the Lord. Look again at Genesis chapter 14. So Genesis 14, Melchizedek comes out and sees Abram, and he says to him, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, hold your place there, because we're going to come back to something that needs to be said. But this idea of blessing is not specifically constrained just to the priesthood. Throughout the scripture, we see other places where blessings are offered. Parents often bless their children. And we find several places in scripture where parents are blessing their children. So skip back to Genesis chapter 9, verses 26 and following. Genesis 9, Noah blessing his son says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. But Moses, and man, I got Moses on the head. Noah has been blessing his children, and I didn't bother to read the curse that was put on um, Ham. But uh, look up now at chapter 27 of Genesis. Genesis 27, starting in verse 27. Isaac blessing his children. He came near and he kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing. He thinks it's Esau, but it's really Jacob who's tricking his father. Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of the field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore may God give you of the dews of heaven, the fatness of the earth, and plenty of rain and wine. Let the people serve you. Let the nations bow down to you and be master over your brethren. Let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. Let's get forward to chapter 28 and verse 20. I'm sorry, chapter, that should say 48. Chapter 48, when Jacob himself is coming to the end of his life and he blesses Joseph's sons. Verse 20 of chapter 48 says, So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Um, so we see all of these blessings where they are invoking the name of God and asking for God to bless. They are blessing in the name of God so that God might do a thing. But I want you to look back now at 
this exchange between Melchizedek and Abram. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. In every blessing that you find in Scripture, the Aaronic blessing, the parental blessing, the other blessing that you would see if you looked them up, there is always an invocation of God, an asking of God to do the blessing. Because no man has the authority to bless on his own. He asks God to do it. He can exchange and and give what is his to give. But the actual blessing has to come from God. But when when Melchizedek blesses, what's missing? Melchizedek just invokes a blessing. Blessed is Abram of God Most High. And blessed be God Most High who has done these things. There's an authority in this blessing that is absent in other places in Scripture. And it's because, again, I've mentioned it before, I believe that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. In the end, Melchizedek blesses Abram not according to the pattern of normal usage. And what's remarkable to me about that is that as he blessed Abram, we see that those who are contained in Abram are also receiving the blessing. It's part of what the writer of Hebrews is making the case that when Abram gave tithes to Melchizedek, Levi was present in him already, and therefore Levi was also acknowledging his subservience to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Well, you can think this through with me and find where you also are found in Abram. You don't have to be the physical descent of Abraham to belong to Abraham. We are the children of Abraham as much as any converted Jew. We are the children of Abraham because not all of Israel are Israel. Only those who love God, those who belong to him, those who are found in Christ. So the blessings that are being offered to Abram by Christ himself in the form of Melchizedek are blessings that are being conveyed to you as his people even now. You you are blessed. You are blessed of God, and it is God who will fight your fights and subdue your enemies. It is God who will give to you everything that he has promised, and it is God who will make the days that are yours fulfill their purpose. Our job is to walk with our God. Our job is to trust him. Our job is to obey and to know that God himself has initiated everything that he requires of us. So the priests engage in this act of blessing, and we receive this, and then there is a response which is required out of the worshipers. So the priests bless, and the worshipers give. When Melchizedek blessed Abram, he was exercising his role as priest of God. But when Abram gave a tithe, he was recognizing that that priesthood was legitimate. That there is a response required when you belong to God. There is a a response required which says, God has given to me, and I return unto him all that he requires of me, and then some. So, So we are called to live a faithful life wherein we return to God out of the abundance that he has poured out upon us. It's not a matter of just giving a little bit so you assuage your conscience. It's a matter of giving unto him the full measure of the tithe. You can't give an offering until you have given the tithe. The tithe is a debt. It's an obligation. It's something that you are required to pay. 
But what that says to us is that when we give what belongs to God and we do this, we are fulfilling the exchange of the blessing. We are, we are honoring the God who has given to us. So in, in this age of grace, this is not a legalistic thing. I don't want anybody to think that if they haven't given their time, that God's angry and they're going to go bust and their house is going to burn down and all their stuff's going to blow up. That's not my point. My point is, is that the act of worship is a reciprocity. It is this return unto God in, in love and, and faithfulness and joy and, and, and gratitude and appreciation for all that He's given to us. And that exchange <coughs> blesses us all the more. When you receive the blessing, you give back to God and you give Him the obedience that He requires of you. And this turns our love to Him all the more. This act of worship, this exchange around the blessing. Is precious and is powerful and lifts our hearts to see Him. Every single aspect of this exchange, whether it's in the act of blessing or in the rest that we're going to discuss, requires some reciprocity from us. So we see the act of blessing, but there's also an act of sacrifice. Now this is where most of us have at least some knowledge of the priestly duty, because this is the part that we speak about often. It's the sacrificial system. It's the idea that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. So the priests were specifically responsible for overseeing the sacrifice. He would offer the gift to God by the sprinkling of the blood upon the altar. He would do all of the preparation, preparing the fire. He would wash the sacrifice. He would offer the actual burning. He would make sure that the sacrifice was acceptable. Before the sacrifice was slain, the priest would inspect it. He would make sure that um, everything was in place. And let's not miss the point that this role of priest being fulfilled by Christ himself underwent all of that. Christ sprinkled the blood. Christ was the one who lived the life which made the sacrifice acceptable. Christ was the one who fulfilled the law of God in its entirety so that his death would be received by God as it was intended to be received. But you might have picked up on something that I left out. You might have said to yourself, well, that's all well and good, but how does the priest come up with blood when all he's done is inspect a living animal? Remember, there's two parts to this. There's the part that they do, and there's the part that we do. The worshipers were the ones to offer the sacrifice was to come from the herds of the worshiper, and they were to be the best that the worshiper had to offer. Now, there were provisions in the law where if you were coming a long way to get to the place of sacrifice, you could purchase um, an animal for the sacrifice, and there were ranges and exchanges for that because sometimes the traveling of a great distance would mean that the animal was unfit for sacrifice by the time you got there. But they also were to understand that they were being replaced by the blood of the sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 2 and following says this. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. And he shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle, meeting before the Lord. 
And he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make an atonement for him. And he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around an altar, all around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. If you read that carefully, whose hand is holding the knife? The offer. So often we hear this presented that they bring it to the priest and then they stand back and they watch the priest slay the animal. But the truth is, the animal is being brought. The priest does the inspection. The man lays his hand upon the, the animal. And he says, my guilt is being transferred to this. Its blood stands for mine. It is my guilt which does it. And then to seal the deal, I will take the knife in my hand and I will kill the animal. By my own work and by my own hand, I will shed the blood that is to be offered in my place. You notice that Jesus didn't kill himself. We see this fulfilled. We see the opportunity for us to understand that this guilt is our guilt and the blood that is transferred on our behalf. You're not allowed to be innocent of that. You're not allowed to just stand back and say, well, okay, thank you for that. I really had nothing to do with it. You need to know this burden. You need to understand the burden that is carried in the shedding of blood. You need to understand that it is your guilt which drove the knife. It is your guilt which drove the nails. It is your guilt which slaughtered the lamb. And yes, God was the one who offered him up. And God was the one who slew him on our behalf. The scripture says it pleased the Father to crush him. But it is our guilt which did all of this. And this exchange is important. Because we, we live mentally and intellectually in this realm where, where we think that we are distanced from this. We don't have the ongoing, continual smell of blood in our nostrils from the act of worship. And I suppose, on behalf of the cleaning crew, that's probably a good thing. But I, I will say this very plainly. We lose something in the exchange. Because it makes it too easy for us to not consider the price that is being paid. It makes it too easy for us to not give any thought to the guilt of our sin which drove the nails home, which slew the lamb, slain for our forgiveness. When the priests were given the blood, the hands that hold the knife were not theirs. The hands that held the knife was the guilty one for whose sins that blood was shed. And the same is true of us. We are the ones who have slain the Christ. Us. By our sin. By our rebellion. By our refusal to acknowledge what God has told us to do and to be. And God in His mercy has completed the sacrifice. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, 
And after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. And from that time, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Paul writes of this in Romans chapter 3. Starting in verse 21. Paul tells us this. The righteousness of God is now revealed apart from the law, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That word propitiation means appeasement. It means that Jesus' death was offered because of the anger of God against our sin. It was offered because God was justly and righteously angry, wrathful, furious over the sin of His people. And that wrath could not be simply set aside. It had to be paid for. It had to be appeased. And it was only the blood of Christ that would be sufficient to appease the wrath of God. We read in Hebrews 10, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It can never make it right. Only Christ, only His death, only the blood of Jesus would be sufficient to do what was needful. Christ was offered in our place. He was slaughtered to atone for our sin. And this should stun us to silence. It should drive us to our knees and worship every time we consider it. And we should consider it always. Because this is our part in the act of worship. This is our part in the plan of redemption. It is the receiving. It is, it is the gratitude. It is the understanding that it is our guilt that drove the nails. Our guilt that slew him. And if we're not catching that, we're missing out on part of the blessing. We're missing out on part of the wonder of it. Yes, it, it's an uncomfortable thought. It's something that, that's not pleasant to think. I killed Jesus. But at the same time, that God has gone to all the, the work and the trouble and, and, and the entire plan of history to produce the opportunity for us to know Him fully. It, it is the most glorious thing. And it is, in spite of the horror of it, it is the most beautiful thing. That God has done this that we might know Him. That we might love Him. That we might worship. This is a forever reality that our God has made. When sin has been atoned for, the process of cleansing is not done. There is an ongoing work in which part of the priest's duty was to help sanctify the people. The priests were responsible for the cleansing of the people. 
Now, often what we find in Scripture is pictures and allusions. And, and even in the Old Testament times when they were actually living out the things that are described, those things that were described were not merely physical acts, but they were physical acts that were pointing to spiritual truths. So I'm going to show you one picture of this and see if you can follow with my thinking. I hope I've got this clear, clear enough. Turn to Leviticus 14. Leviticus chapter 14. And we're going to read starting at verse 34. So Leviticus 14, starting at verse 34, we find this. When you have come into the land of Canaan, which I give you as a possession, and I put the leprous plague in a house in the land of your possession, he who owns the house comes and tells the priest, saying, it seems to me that there is some plague in the house. That's really funny, just the way that's put. <laughs> then the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes into it to examine the plague, that in all that is in the house may not be made unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to examine the house. He shall examine the plague, and if indeed the plague is on the walls of the house, in grain with streaks, greenish or reddish, which appear to be deep in the wall, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house, and shall shut up the house for seven days. And then there's a long list of things that go on to try and cleanse the house. And so skip down to verse 52. And it says, He shall cleanse the house with the blood of the bird, and with running water, and with the living bird, with the cedar wood, and the hyssop, and the scarlet. And he shall let the living bird loose outside of the city in the open field, and make atonement for the house, and it shall be clean. This is the law for any leprous sore and scale, for the leprosy of a garment and of a house, for a swelling and a scab of a bright spot, to teach what is unclean and what is clean. And this is the law of leprosy. So what was the point of what was going on? To teach us what is clean and to teach us what is unclean. But it was the priest's responsibility to oversee the act of cleansing to make sure that the people were properly set apart for use unto God. They would fulfill the law of God to cleanse the things that were made to clean. We need God's intervention to cleanse us from our struggles. We need God's intervention. We need God's word to cleanse us from our failings, from our messes, from all of the things that are going on in our life that we look at and we say, I don't like this. Unfortunately, for the most part, we don't turn to God to cleanse us from our disasters. For the most part, we go to the bookstore and we look for self-help books. So we go to YouTube and we look for somebody who can tell us how they fix themselves with seven easy steps. We, we look for somebody else to give us guidance and counsel to heal the things that are wrong with us. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to learn things and make things better. But what I am saying is that the primary responsibility for us to be cleansed of our failings is found in the priest that God has given them. Beloved, whatever your ailment, whatever your disaster, whatever your struggle, whatever your trial, whatever you're wrestling with, understand that primarily the answer is found in Jesus Christ. He is your answer. He is your hope. He is your cleansing. He is your priest. And just as the priest was responsible to oversee these things, because we need God to cleanse us. But more than that, we need God to help us know 
that we have been cleansed. Amen? Amen. There are many times in our lives where somebody has, has been cleansed of a sin, has been set free from it, but they spend the rest of their lives wrapped up in guilt over things that God has already delivered them from. Now, do you think that God has provided for us a solution to help with such things? I believe the scripture speaks to it directly. Look at me at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Starting in verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offers himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Beloved, when you wrestle with guilt over things that have been done in the past, you need to recognize the truth that God has delivered you from that guilt. He has removed it from you. And you have been set free. And finding in Christ the promise that God has forgiven should cleanse your consciences from those dead works. Just as the priest would go into a leprous house, perform the things according to the law, and the house would be pronounced cleansed. Do you think that the, work, the, the people of, of Israel would go back into the house and go, you know, this used to be a leper's house? No. They, they might say it to give praise to God that He's cleansed them from it. Amen. But they're not going to go back in all the time worried that they're living in a house that, that's now unclean. They're not going to go sell it so that they can find some place that was never cut, set that way. That's not the point of this. The point of this is that God cleanses us and He sets us free. So, what's the worshiper's part? Well, I want you to notice that the priest didn't go around inspecting houses looking for leper spots. The worshiper came to him and said, um, I believe there's something wrong with my house. Worshippers confess. God sanctifies. Worshippers confess. We Lay before God our guilt. We lay before God the things that He brings to our attention. The act of confessing begins with our recognition of the problem. And beloved, understand this, that comes from God as well. You, you will never confess something that God Himself has not first brought to your mind. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you despise the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Now this verse is often twisted out of context and made to say that the only nice, good things about God are going to make somebody repent. That's not what this is saying. This is saying it is the active goodness of God to draw you to repentance. That when you repent, it is evidence of the fact that God has been acting towards you in love and kindness. That God has been bringing things to your mind. That God has been showing you your guilt. That God has been showing you your sin. That God has been showing you your rebellion. And He has been doing it for the express purpose of drawing you to Himself in repentance. You see, not only do we need God to cleanse us, and not only do we need God to tell us that we have been cleansed, 
But before any of that can happen, we need God to show us our sin so that we know we need to repent. Because we are all very guilty of tremendous self-deception. We are all very good at saying, there's nothing wrong with me. I've done nothing wrong. The truth is, that's just not the truth. The truth is, we all need to be repenting constantly. It is God who will show us our sin so that we might repent of it and participate with Him in the act of worship, which is our ongoing sanctification. So often we tend to think of worship as the thing that we do when we come together as, as the church. If, if we're really super spiritual, we might think of worship as the thing that we do when we get up in the morning and we read our Bible and maybe we sing a little hymn because nobody's around to hear us sing. And, and we want to just give God the praise and the glory and we say, thank you for what you've done. And we go, I worshiped today. But I want you to understand that worship is much deeper than that. Worship is the ongoing obedience to God in all that He has given to us. And your sanctification is an act of worship. When you repent, repentance itself is an act of worship. When you confess your sin before God and say, God, I am so sorry that I have done this thing. That change of direction, that turning from sin and turning into God and asking for mercy is worship. It's worship on several counts, not the least of which is that just asking for mercy is to give God praise as a God who is merciful. Because there are people that I would never ask for mercy for because I would, first of all, never receive it. And second of all, they would take it as a sign of weakness and do their best to destroy me. But God is never that one. When I ask God for mercy, I ask because I know His character. And I know His nature. And I know that He will give mercy because He is good. Not because I deserve it. I will never deserve mercy. I will never deserve grace. I will never deserve kindness from I receive it from Him because He is good, not because I am. I receive goodness and mercy and grace and love from God because they are testimonies to His character and His nature. So when I ask for these things, it is inherently an act of worship. It is inherently an act by which I say, God, You are worthy to be praised for Your goodness to me. Because by asking these things, I'm confessing who I know you to be. In everything that we do, there is opportunity for us to be worshiping in the fullness of our following after God. And then we find that there is the priests who are urging the people forward in acts of faithful love. There is a, a, a responsibility which was that the priesthood was to keep God before the people. Everything they did was to remind the people always of who God was. It was to remind the people that God was the center of their world, the heart around which everything that they did was to revolve. They, they would prepare the tabernacle for worship. They would engage in the, in the duties that were prescribed to their specific families and their specific tribes. Those who were to prepare the showbread would make sure that it was beautiful and perfectly baked. 
and prepared properly and they were set upon the table. And those who were to prepare the fire were careful to make sure that the fire was tended properly. And the incense was properly prepared and the candles were in the right place. The tabernacle was set up properly. The, the drapes hung appropriately. Every pomegranate tied in its proper location. This was all designed to teach the people that God was in their midst and that all of life revolved around God. When Israel was traveling, the tabernacle went before them and the priests would set it up before the people would even arrive. At the center of the camp, at the heart of everything that was, was the tabernacle of God. The tribes were set up in a cross form to either side and front and rear behind it. The tabernacle was the hub. The Levites encamped around the tabernacle to teach the people that God was not to be casually approached. Everything that they did was to teach the nature and the character of God. They were to teach God that He was the center of all things. Now, here's the thing. When you live a life wherein worship is the center of your life, it is a little bit easier to keep God in the center of your heart. But when you give your time and attention to every other thing under the sun, it's very easy for that to shift out of its proper focus. This is especially hard for those of us who, who live in a world where we have other responsibilities besides just sitting around all day reading the Bible and worshiping. That's all of us. We have families. We have jobs. We have obligations. We have responsibilities. We have things that keep us from just doing that specific thing that we narrowly define as worship. But if we're thinking about this aright, our high priest is reminding us that he is always with us. Our high priest is reminding us that he is always there. He's put his spirit to dwell in us who points us to himself, who reminds us of everything that he has said, who shows us the divine in the midst of the mundane, who gives to us glory in the midst of the things that are passing away. When we start to think about how Christ as our priest fulfills this obligation and fulfills this duty of keeping worship central to our lives, we begin to recognize the truth that in everything that we do is the opportunity for worship. In everything that we do, there is the opportunity to give God praise for whatever it is that He is doing in that moment. Beloved, understand this. The difficult things that you want to change, they are your best opportunities for honest worship. The things that you would undo if you could wave a magic wand and make them go away, they are the very things that drive you to the Father so that you might worship all the more honestly. For all of us, we need to recognize in the midst of our lives the chances and the opportunities and the preparation for worship that God has made in our lives in all the things that are facing us. Because we have a high priest whose very action in dwelling inside of us is to make us aware of God in our midst. The priests did it in a very physical way, a very anchored way to the tabernacle itself. But our priest tabernacles with us. He tabernacles in us. And he dwells in us to bring us into his presence always. There is no part of your life 
which is not an opportunity for worship. There is no part of your life which is not a call to worship. There is no part of your life which has not been prepared by God for the purpose of helping you worship. So what is our part in that? Well, if the priests are to help us fulfill the acts of love that are required for an ongoing heart of worship, our responsibility, quite simply put, is to surrender to it. At its heart, worship is an act of love. It is a confession of our love and our affection to God, and it is an outward display of His absolute centrality to our hearts and our lives. So worship begins with a willingness to surrender our agenda and our affections as an ongoing process for life. Worship begins by saying, Lord, I love you more than I love whatever this might be. I love you more. And my love for you motivates me to do the things that are put in front of me in a, in a way that I am doing them so that my eye is fixed on you. It is an act of love. It is an act of surrender. It is an act of willingness. And it is the power of God which we require to do it because we will never surrender things if we love them wrongly. That thing that you're holding on to and clenching to with everything you have in you, you know what it is. That thing that you just can't let go of? What does that say about your affection for that thing versus your affection for God? What does it say about how wrongly your affections are placed? You see, in all of us, worship is love. We love what we worship. The question is, what are you loving? What is it that you're clinging to? What is it that God is calling you to surrender so that you might give that love to Him because He loves us. And He calls us into fellowship with Him so that this heart of worship might be a reciprocal time of love and a reciprocal time of exchange of this affection which we would never deserve and seldom appreciate. See, God alone can make our hearts live to Him. And when He does this work, when He makes our hearts live, when He makes our hearts see Him as He is, our response of love becomes a very organic process. It becomes the most natural thing in the world to say, oh God, how beautiful you are. You see, the thing that keeps us from loving Him as He deserves to be loved more than anything else is a failure to see Him alive. We see Him through wrong lenses. We see Him through the lenses of our own imagination instead of seeing Him through the lens of Scripture. So what will heal our inability to worship and to love as God deserves to be loved is a clearer vision of Him. And a vision of Him that is driven by the truth of Scripture rather than by anything else. Which is why the Spirit dwelling inside of us is such a powerful thing. Because God has given us a portion of Himself to be constantly revealing truth to us. To be constantly revealing the truth of His Word. To be constantly reminding us of everything that He has said so that we might love Him as He deserves to be loved. Beloved, you need a priest. Amen. You have one. And the priest that God has given you is far better than anything else you could ever have imagined. Understand this. 
and grow in the grace which says, Lord, thank you for providing all that is needed so that I might come into your presence and worship as you deserve to be worshipped. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace, and I pray, Lord, that you would help make us the people who worship with honest hearts. Lord, let the truth of who you are drive our worship, let our understanding of your love, Lord, let it make love in us. God, we pray that over all that we do and all that we say, that it is love for you that motivates us. Lord, let it not be the weak, trite love that the culture desires, but let it be the kind of love that changes things. Lord, let it be honest and let it be based in Scripture. Father, if we love you in that manner, give us the grace to love our fellow man in a way that's not afraid to speak the truth. God, help us to be the transforming power in this age of darkness. That Christ will be honored in hearts where he is now. But we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.